Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord show near their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to focus, concentrate on the study of the word. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness to us, for the way you provide so many blessings to us from just the common everyday things that that we too often take for granted just in the uh, beautiful weather we've had the last couple of days and just the uh, opportunities that we have to uh, relax with our families and to spend time together, the opportunities to just to study your word and to be encouraged knowing that you are in control and you have a plan. Now, Father, as we continue to uh, study the outworking of your plan in light of of, uh, Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49, we pray that you would encourage us as we see uh, that your grace is not based on who we are, what we've done, or who Israel is, or what they did in the past, but it's based upon your plan and your character. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. While you're turning in your Bibles to Judges chapter... Uh, 17, Judges chapter 17, we'll just go over a little news item that came out today. Some of you may have noticed this, but that um, there was an announcement this morning of a discovery of Herod's tomb, what they believe to be Herod's tomb in the Herodian, which is just outside of Bethlehem. It's one of the places we went to last summer. What was interesting is just prior to our going to uh, Bethlehem, we had been in the uh, at Qumran, where uh, Randy Price was getting ready, preparing for his dig, and one of the men helping him in that preparation was the chief archaeologist that they mentioned in the in the uh, article that was in the paper this morning uh, for the dig at the Herodian. He wasn't present when they discovered the sarcophagus. Uh, we don't know. It didn't say when they discovered it. It wasn't yesterday. Uh, well, they expected to have found it last summer, but these are the kinds of things that even when they discover it, it will be months before they leak any information about it because they have to measure everything and they have to evaluate everything. So it was probably discovered sometime last summer. So when we were at the Herodian, we were all kind of looking around, trying to figure out where they were digging, but they're so far underground and cordoned off that we didn't see any of that activity. But that's going to be interesting. I should be there in about another month, so we'll see what what happens there. Okay, we're in Judges chapter 17. What's been going on in our study is that we're looking at the prophecy of Jacob for the for 
his son Dan and the tribe that would come from Dan. And this is given in Genesis 49:16 through 18. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And there it's talking about uh, <clears throat> discernment and some level of uh, leadership at some point. Most people believe that this was uh, fulfilled most likely during the judgeship of, of um, Samson. Even though the word for judge here, as I pointed out in the past, let me see if I have a sign, there isn't the one from Shaphat, which would indicate ruling or leadership. It's a broader term, the word that was usually used for the Shophetim or the judges in Israel, but it was the Hebrew word din indicating more of uh, uh, acting as a judge or governing in a more of a judicial sense, in the sense of resolving uh, disputes or contentions between people. And so this, this would have been fulfilled during the time of the judges. Another thing I pointed out in our introduction to this the last few weeks is that the tribal allotment of Dan, and this comes into play, this comes into play tonight, is this on the screen over here, it looks green, this green L-shaped area here from Joppa down uh, just north of Ekron across to the pink area, which was the allotment of Benjamin, just to the north of this this uh, other green area here, which is the allotment for Judah. This is important because in Judges chapter 1, we learned that Dan never took their allotment. They never managed to seize control of their inheritance that God was giving them from the Canaanites. They, not only did they not defeat the Canaanites, the Canaanites drove them back. And so this sets the backdrop for understanding the episode that's given in chapter 18 of the book of Judges, that they're, they never managed to conquer the land, they never managed to establish a settlement uh, in the land, and so there was, a, there was a problem there. The second verse in the prophecy, Genesis 49, 17, compares Dan to a serpent. And there are some who say, well, this indicates the cunning of a serpent, and so it's a small, innocuous animal appears to be, or it's hidden, and yet it can attack something much stronger, and so they attempt to connect that to Samson. I think the first part of verse 16 connects perhaps to Samson. This connects to a more insidious influence of Dan as a serpent picking up the, all of the imagery from Genesis chapter 3. You have a serpent mentioned here plus the uh, biting of the horse's heels, and it indicates that the, the serpent would cause the rider, to, the rider to topple and to fall. And in that case, what we see in the history of Dan is that Dan is the tribe that brings idolatry into Israel, and they stay idolatrous. They are a tribe that is apostate almost from the beginning. They are second in size to the tribe of Judah, yet they're completely incapable of defeating the Canaanite enemy. And it's not because of their size or their lack of military prowess. It's because of their failure to trust God. You see, one of the great applications of this is, is it teaches us that in the major battles of life, whatever they may be in your life, whether they're financial 
uh, psychological, emotional, family, relationship, whatever they might be, in the major battles of life, if God is on your side and you're truly applying doctrine, then you can have victory over it no matter what the odds are because God plus one is a majority. But when you are operating on carnality, on a pagan system of thought, then it doesn't matter how much education you have, how much money you have, how uh, many resources you have behind you from a humanistic standpoint, it's still not going to give you uh, peace and happiness and salvation because it's done in the power of the flesh. And why should man trust in the power of the flesh instead of the power of God? And so this is the trouble with Dan. Dan never gets their priorities right, never trusts God, and as a result, they always have failure. It's not a matter of your typical resource, human resources in terms of natural intelligence or education or money or social position or anything of that nature. It is always a matter of the grace of God. Now, the key verse that we see repeated twice in the book of Judges is in our chapter here in Judges 17, uh, verse 6. And this verse is repeated uh, twice in Judges, also in 19.1. In those days there was no king in Israel. That phrase is actually repeated another time in Judges 18.1. The whole verse is repeated twice, 17.6 and 19.1. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That first line is almost a double entendre. That there's no king in Israel. There's no monarchy yet. It was, the book of Judges was probably written during the period of either Saul or David's kingship. So it's written just about 100 or 200 years later uh, <clears throat> when there was a king. But... More important than that is that there is a rejection of God as the king in a theocracy. In a theocracy, God is the head of state. God is the executive branch, as it were. And they had rejected God. They had rejected his authority in Israel. And as a result, once you reject the authority of God in your life, then a proper and true understanding of authority breaks down all the way down the line, because your core understanding of authority is that there is a creator who is over against the creation, and that creator has the right to dictate policy to his creation. He is the one who defines everything. He is the one who determines right and wrong and establishes values. But once you get rid of that authority, then all other authority becomes a matter of either personal taste uh, personal preference, or it becomes a matter of power and the imposition of authority in terms of, of tyranny. This is why in the context of, in the context of, uh, uh, of paganism, you have a breakdown in the family. You have a breakdown, as we'll see in this passage, you have a breakdown of parental authority. You have a breakdown of uh, the authority of men. And you have this a role reversal thing that goes on inside the culture where the uh, women do not understand what it means to be feminine anymore. And men do not understand what true masculinity is as coming from the hand of God. And so there is a perversion of the two roles. And what's played out is that... Uh, <clears throat> curse that's announced in Judges, I mean, excuse me, Genesis 3, 
uh, 16, that the woman would desire to exercise authority over the husband, and the husband will rule over her, and there's just this complete uh, breakdown of the roles that eventually leads, uh, in worst-case scenarios, as we see in some uh, some civilizations, some societies, let's say, not civilized at all, uh, where you have matriarchal societies where the women run, uh, run everything and the men become uh, truly irresponsible and you have a complete breakdown. And you see this in different segments of society today. And one of the reasons that we have the breakdown in authority that we have today and the, uh, in, in so many areas that, that causes the rise of violence, uh, the, the shootings that are taking place in, um, in the schools, it partly can be attributed to a complete breakdown in authority orientation in our culture as a whole because when authorities are in, in the right place and they're functioning correctly, then, there it, there, then it provides a channel within wh- which people can operate and can live and can fulfill their their God-given talents. But when authority breaks down and it's either completely permissive on the one hand, which is what we have in the dominant ethical system of our culture, or it's uh, tyrannical on the other hand, then what happens is people don't know where the boundaries are anymore, and they they, they begin to just implode, and they begin begin to just follow anything. And so I often reflect upon the fact that back when many of us were in high school, and I went to high school, City High School, right over here at Bel Air, and I remember that uh, when I was in high school, the guys that were in the Future Farmers of America would drive their pickup trucks, because back then I, I got my driver's license when I was 14. They changed it right after that. You remember that, Bruce? We could get our driver's license at 14, so you had sophomore juniors in high school driving pickup trucks to high to school with their Win, Winchester lever action 3030 on the gun rack or 12 gauge shotgun and nobody thought anything about it and nobody ever thought that somebody'd go out there and take that shotgun or 3030 off the gun rack start shooting people with it why because there was an understanding of right and wrong and authority that was inbred into people and when that breaks down People just start making up all their own rules, and everything falls apart, and everything is up for grabs. And that's what is pictured in these last few chapters of Judges. The section in Judges from um, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, up through the end of chapter 16, which is the end of Samson's era, focuses on the leadership, as it were, in the nation, the key leadership. It starts with uh, Othniel, Ehud, uh, Deborah and Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. Those are your major judges. And it goes down through the history there. And when and what it points out is that they are as corrupted by the paganism of the culture as the people are. And with each successive generation, the Jews, the, the Israelites' culture looks more and more like the pagan culture around them and you no longer see a distinctiveness and if you were living in America in the 18th century people were Christian people were uh, held to theistic views of, of uh, a theistic world view and they believed the Bible was the word of God now that doesn't mean everybody was a Christian but they thought like Christians should think and this culture was completely different people had honor 
and integrity, and there were absolutes, and people understood that law was law, and law wasn't something that people thought up, but the law came from God ultimately, and it was a completely different culture. You look at it today, and there's rebellion everywhere. Nobody wants to uh, uh, believe that law is absolute, or that, and they try to get <clears throat> any kind of reminder that law comes from God out of the, out of the courthouse. So we live in a time that is comparable to the period of the judges, that there was no king in the land. Everyone is doing what's right, what's right in their own eyes. Samson was the worst of the judges, and when Samson dies, the, the, he hasn't delivered the nation, and he has not. Uh, you know, they're still under the thumb of the of the Philistines, and Samson is. Uh, just as pagan in his life as anybody around him, but God in his grace gave him uh, grace there at the end to judge the uh, to judge the Philistines. Now, last time we finished this, I talked about how large the temple was there in, uh, in Gath to Dagon, that it's, the text says that 3,000 men and women were on the roof. Now, this isn't a Philistine temple. This was a Roman temple built in the city of Jerash, which is located in um, in Jordan. And this was one of the ten cities in what the New Testament calls the Decapolis. And this was a temple to Artemis, uh, or Diana, actually. And if you look at that, you can see how enormous those pillars are because you can see those people down there at the bottom. That white shirt looks like Bob Beavers down there, right there in the middle. And uh, I'm over there in the corner trying to push the pillar over. But that's, uh, that's what that looked like. I mean, just enormous. And yet, that's what Samson knocked down. So that just, I found this picture. I think Melanie took this one and uh, ran across this this last week, and that was a perfect illustration of the, the size the, that those temples uh, were. Okay, now we come to chapter 17 and 18. 17 and 18 need to be taken as one episode. Chapter 17 is really the prelude or background information to what happens in the idolatry in chapter 18. And then chapter 19 is a completely uh, separate episode, chapters 19 and 20. And what these two episodes show is the corruption in the priesthood and the people. Genesis, I mean, Judges 3 through 16 shows the corruption, the paganization of the leadership, and then these, these two appendices, 17 and 18, 19 and 20, show the corruption of the priesthood and the people. So we start off, we're introduced to a man named Micah. This isn't the Micah of, <coughs> of the minor prophets later on, but this is another Micah who is an Ephraimite, in the mountains, mountains of Ephraim. Now, let me go back here to where we had a, a map. Okay, now, if you look at the map, here's the Dead Sea here in the south. This is the Sea of Galilee up here in the north. And Jerusalem is located uh, right here. The area known for the, for the tribe of Ephraim was just to the north of Jerusalem. This uh, had areas... Uh, Bethel was near there, Shiloh. It's a, it's the the center of the, the central highlands 
or hill country of, uh, of Israel. There was a man of the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, now the family dynamics here are just fascinating. He comes to his mother, we're introduced in the middle of the drama. Because we haven't seen the, the original event here, we just see the results of it. He says to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were stolen from you, literally, and on which you put a curse. See, somebody stole these 1,100 shekels or life savings, and, and so he, uh, she curses whoever would have stolen this from her in the ears of her son. And he says, I've got it. Here's your silver. He's confessing uh, to, to the crime. And his mother says, blessed be you, son. Now, this son is an adult son, because later on we're going to be introduced to his son. So this is an adult son, and so she is an older woman, and she, had, she just blessed him. It shows that there's absolutely no discipline with, within, the, within the family anymore. And not that she would be bending him over her knee or anything. He's an adult. But she just completely reverses herself and says, Well, isn't this so nice? Uh, you gave me back the money, and so she she says, "May you be blessed by the Lord." And this is a use back in in, in the book of uh, Exodus where we have the Ten Commandments. The one of the commandments says, "Don't take the Lord's name in vain." And what you often hear is people who don't know anything about Hebrew, don't know anything about the Bible, come along and say, "Oh, what that means is you shouldn't say any uh, you use the name of Jesus as a as a curse word or uh, use God as a prefix in front of some other uh, kind of profanity. And while in some sense that's true, that's not what that verse is talking about. What that commandment is talking about is don't attach the name of God, of Yahweh, the covenant God of the Old Testament, to a cause or a purpose that is not his. You know, do not use his name in an illicit manner. And that's really what this is. What is happening here is she is calling upon God to to bless her son, despite his thievery. That's using God's name in vain. So God's name is used in vain more by churches on Sunday morning than by the homeless under the bridges on Saturday night. Because they are attaching the name of God to unbiblical and false theology and false concepts. And that is more blasphemous than it is to prefix a curse word with G-O-D. So she's going to use... And I want you to pay attention to how the name of God is used in this chapter. So she says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother... Uh, she said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son. So she was going to take this to the tabernacle. But she decides, rather than taking it to the tabernacle, where it would be used, hopefully correctly, she decides that she's going to set up her own, she's going to keep that money for herself, and she's going to define the right way that that money should be used for the Lord. See, that's what happens when we get into apostasy and in arrogance. We become our own little God, and we start dictating, our, dictating right and wrong. So that's what she does here. 
and she's going to establish her own religious cult right here in, in, uh, in verse 3. So she's going to take this money to make a carved image and a molded image, two different images, one out of wood and one out of some sort of metal, probably uh, bronze. And then she's going to identify these as representations of Yahweh. Now, that's exactly what happens in numerous churches every week in America, is they, they have a false theology, they generate their own view of God, which is not a biblical view of God, and then they say that's, that's God, and that is taking God's name in vain. They're creating a false religion. So you have a, a breakdown in authority orientation, which is a characteristic of any pagan culture where the son is stealing from his mother, and his mother just is very permissive about the whole thing. And that leads to a, or it really is symbolic of a breakdown in the whole relationship with God. So in verse 4 we read that uh, she, he, he, the son makes it into a carved image, makes a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah, the son. Then in verse 5 we're told that Micah had a shrine, so he builds this little shrine. Now, it's really amazing what religion can lead people to do. I remember when, one time when we were up in Connecticut, and I wish I had a picture. I've got to go by and get a picture of this this summer when I'm up there. There was a man in Norwich who had one of these backyards that you'd open the back door and the, the, it would just have a hillside behind, right behind his house in his backyard. And they had these shrines where they take what looks like to me as a bathtub and turn it upside down like this, and then they put a statue of Mary in there. He must have had 40 of these bathtub Marys. In his backyard. That's what I always called them. And flowers, and, it, and, and they were painted the most garish colors you could imagine, pink and blue and all kinds of things. But that's what, what happened. They're just setting up their own shrine, creating their own religion uh, here in, in Ephraim. So it's a picture of the apostasy of the whole nation uh, in, in, in Ephraim. Now then we're told... Um, the key verse in verse 6, in those days there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes, and that's what they were doing. Now, in verse 5, it also mentioned he consecrated one of his sons to be the priest. So he's establishing his own counter-shrine to the tabernacle, and he's establishing his own counter-priesthood to the legitimate Levitical priesthood. And what, what happens here is you see the, the superstition that runs through uh, a lot of false religion. That using God as a talisman or a good luck charm or a rabbit's foot, as long as we say the right words, Yahweh, as long as we uh, give uh, some kind of uh, uh, credence or some kind of nod to, uh, to God, then everything's going to be fine. Now, verse 7 we read, There's a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who's a Levite. So he's, he's living as the Levites were to do amongst the other tribes. And he's staying there, that is, in uh, the area uh, in, in Bethlehem. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. And he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And so he they get introduced, and the Levite tells him that he's from Bethlehem in Judah, and he's a Levite, and he's looking for a place where he can serve. And so Micah says, well, why don't you live with me? I've got a little, 
a tabernacle here, a shrine to God. We'll worship God. I'll make you a priest and consecrate you as a priest, and you can work for me, and, and we'll have a good little religious racket going here. We can tell everybody that if, you know, that if they give, uh, uh, whatever they give to, to God, then God will restore tenfold, and we'll run our own little health and wealth prosperity theology right here. Uh, out of my shrine. That's the kind of thing they did. When you think about it, what was the what was the going Canaanite religion at the time? It's the fertility religion. It's an agricultural society. And in a fertility re- religion in agriculture, everything is about prosperity. It is about fertilizing the soil and growing crops so that you have a prosperous season. The old Baal religion and the fertility cult was nothing more than the, than a primitive form of the modern uh, prosperity theology that you hear proclaimed on television over and over again today. So it's, it's not any different, people generating their own religion and promoting a false gospel. So in verse 12 we read, Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will be good to me. Just the blindness and the arrogance of a false religion. It's using God's name in vain, thinking that if we use God's name, we call this these idols after the name of Yahweh, that somehow God's going to be good to us, and we'll just you know use him for a lucky charm. Now we're reminded in the eighteen one. Now in those days there was no king in Israel. In those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves. They're still trying to figure out where their property is because they never could defeat the Amorites. And the, in fact, the Amorites pushed them back up into the hills. So they're still looking around to find out where they could, where they could land. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtaol. Anybody remember where those two places are? We still have the map up here. Here we go. They're not marked on the map, but they're located right down in this in this general area where the uh, tribe of Dan makes this corner. Their allotment makes this corner here between Gezer and uh, Gezer and, uh, Kyria, and uh, Akron, right in here. Now down here, this area is the Gaza Strip. Here's Gaza. This is where all the fighting and everything takes place today. Now, if you turn back just to the last verse of the previous chapter, you read that when Samson died... His brothers and all of his father's household came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. Now Manoah, according to uh, 16.2, was, I mean, excuse me, according to 13.2, was of the tribe of Dan. So this is from their, this is the center of Dan's allotment is between uh, Zorah and Eshtaol. So they, they choose out five men to go on a long-range reconnaissance patrol to send them up throughout the land to find a place where they can conquer the inhabitants and carve out their own, uh, their own inheritance because they haven't been able to take the land that God said was theirs, so they're going to steal it from somebody else. So what's the first thing that ought to be coming to your mind? Is that they're they're totally they're totally paganized? They've rejected God, rejected His provision. They 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 don't want to get God's property God's way, so they're going to get their own their own way. And this shows the complete breakdown of authority orientation in the tribe of Dan. Uh, 
So they head up. They send out this five-man patrol to find land for them. And as they're searching, they come to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And while they're there, while they're there in the in the house of Micah, they discover this this young Levite and begin to interrogate him. Is what are you doing here? Who are you? How did you get here? And he tells them the whole story about how Micah hired him, and he was now a priest in this uh, tabernacle, this shrine in in Ephraim. So they said, "Oh, you're a holy man." You know, you talk to God. You're a good sky pilot. Let me ask you, pray for God for me. So, see, they're using God as just a good luck charm. And notice that they refer to God using the generic El, Elohim, and the priest uses Yahweh. Now, he's not, remember, he's, he's completely in car- carnality disobedience, but he's trying to at least have a facade of uh, of of legitimacy. But they're just saying, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. This is like so many people. They they want God's approval on whatever it is they're doing. And we see this in our country all the time. It's, it, I think it's worse in the South because there's still this, this remnant in the Bible belt of, of, biblical, of biblical talk of God speak. But the culture isn't godly. The culture it doesn't have any any more spiritual value to it than it does anywhere else. It just has this re- residual veneer left over from four or five generations ago. And you have people who, because it's still culturally the norm, will go to church on Sunday morning, and that afternoon... Uh, it's as if they never heard uh, anything that was said that morning, primarily because of the bad teaching on Sunday morning, number one. But number two, because they've created a, a compartmentalization. This is true. Uh, it's probably true more of all of us here than we'd want to admit. A compartmentalization of doctrine. That's what we believe, but this is where we live. And we compartmentalize the Word of God. That's how our culture teaches us to to be able to live in a pagan society without without challenging every word that comes out of everybody's mouth around us. And so what happens is it's just that gradual uh, road of compromise that dilutes and diminishes our own spiritual uh, power. And this is where it leads is before long you're just you're, you're talking the language but it doesn't mean anything. And this is why survey after survey after survey of evangelicals reveals that on the one hand they make these statements, they believe in God, they believe the Bible is the word of God, they believe Jesus is going to come back literally to this earth and judge everybody, like 75% of Americans believe that, but then they, they continue to live on the basis of a completely relativistic, immoral set of values. It doesn't affect how they do business, it doesn't affect how they, how they conduct their professional lives because they don't understand the difference between, let's say, being a, a, a doctor who is a Christian and being a doctor who has thought through the entire medical practice from a biblical framework or being a lawyer who, ha- who is a Christian and a lawyer who has thought through the, the whole philosophy of law from a Christian framework 
and is applying that to the way he practices law. And what we have today is we have all kinds of people who are in all kinds of professions from you know, half probably, I was being generous there by saying half, probably 70% of, uh, of evangelical Christians in this country who are in some kind of financial business probably operating on more, more on principles of socialism than on biblical principles of capitalism and private ownership of property. And that's where our culture goes because pe- people aren't taught worldview anymore. They're not taught how to think through their, uh, their profession top to bottom from a biblical framework. Because where did you go to school to learn your training in finance? You went to some secular school. They were taught by somebody who was an unbeliever who had no clue what the biblical principles of, of finance or economics or, or, or money was all about. Uh, you go and you study history. That was my field. You go and you study history from secular professors who don't understand that history is the outworking of God's program, and so you, you don't learn how to connect any of the dots in history and to look at it from a divine framework. So all you do is you look at individual events. And what happens? You go back into the classroom as a high school teacher, a junior high teacher, and you're teaching history from a pagan philosophy of history, and you don't even know it because you never had a pastor who spent, uh, you know, three months in the pulpit on Sunday morning teaching you what a biblical philosophy of history is out of the Old Testament because they're going to scare people away. And see, so that's what happens. So you end up diluting the body of Christ with a lot of paganism, and nobody knows how to, how to teach absolutes anymore. And so the talk about God is just God talk. It means nothing. And that's what we see with the Danites, and that's what we see with the Levitical priest. Now they ask him to uh, inquire of God whether their journey will be prosperous. And, of course, God's not talking to this priest, and he just comes back like the most priests and most pagan denominations in religion, and say, oh, God will be with you. And it sounds so good when he comes off their lip, just rolls out, and it just sounds so holy. And God bless you. That's another one of my pet peeves is the word blessing is so overused today. I don't know if you've noticed that, but everybody talks about, well, be blessed. And, I'm, you know, nobody knows what the word means, and it's just, just watered-down jargon. So the spies uh, go on up to the north of, let me go back to my slide here, to the northern part of Israel, to the uh, old Canaanite city by the name of Laish. And that's what later is renamed Dan. And so this is the the sign to walk along the nature trail that you take up north of uh, the Sea of Galilee to the to Tell Dan, which is the ancient tell uh, of Dan, where the city of Dan was, and the gates of Laish uh, have been uh, uncovered by by archaeologists. So they went up and they <clears throat> they discovered that the inhabitants there were related to the Sidonians, and they were Canaanites who had not been kicked out of the land, and so they. Uh, decided they could conquer them. So they headed back to their uh, uh, fellow members of the tribe of Dan at Zor and Eshtol and gave them the report that they could easily conquer this particular area. 
So they give the report, verse 9, Rise, let's go up against them, for we have seen the land. It's very good. Would you do nothing? Don't hesitate to go and enter into possess the land. Now, God has not given them this land. This is not theirs, but they're going to go steal it. And when you go, you'll come to a secure people, large land, for God has given it into your hands. Notice how they use God to justify their own decisions. God gets blamed for everything. So six hundred. They, they put together an army, verse 11, 600 men from the tribe of Dan, and they head north, and they initially camp outside of Kiriath-Jerim, which is renamed Mahanadan, or the camp of Dan, and then they head through the hill country of Ephraim, and they come by the house of Micah. When they get there, these five men who had served as the advance patrol come by and say, you know, there's, we, we can't camp, stop here on the way up, and there's a house over here, and there's a man who set up this temple, and he's got a carved idol, and he has a molded idol, and he has a priest, and if we really want to be successful, we ought to take these with us. That's going to be our good luck charm, because then God will be on our side. And that's how they were, they were arguing. So they went into the house, and they're going to steal God. Now, there's just... There's just something about this that's, that's a little bit odd. We're going to steal God so that God can, can bless us in our conquest. So when they go to Micah's house and they're stealing this, the, the Levitical priest, this apostate Levite, wakes up and decides to stop them. What's going on here? And they say, well, just keep your mouth shut. Put your hand over your mouth. Come with us and you can be a priest for us and we'll build you an even better shrine. We'll make your name famous. We, we, we'll put you on television. And you can, you can build your own ministry, and we'll put you on the Internet. And, and that's basically the idea then, of course, in their primitive sense. So the priest's heart was glad in verse 20, and he took the ephod, which is a priestly garment, the household idols, a carved image, and everything, and he took his place among the tribe, and they <clears throat> headed north. And when they were some distance from the tribe of Micah, this is intimidation, and try the, the, from, from, and when they were some distance from Micah's house, uh, the people who lived in that area suddenly realized that their God had been stolen. So they started, they put together a, a, a posse to go chase down the Danites, and they didn't have enough men, and when they got ca- caught up with them, the Danites told them, well, you better keep your mouth shut and just go home because... Um, we, we, we've got your gods and we'll overpower you. And that's what they did. They were cowards. When you don't have a solid moral system, you can't fight for freedom because you don't have any absolutes to fight for. And so they, uh, they, they gave up. And the children of Dan uh, went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. He just gave up. Now, in verse 27 to 31, we see what happens in the north. They took the things that Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword, burned the city with fire. There's no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. So this is like the Lebanese war. They're up there. They're not too far from modern Lebanon, but they were too far from the Sidonians who were up uh, further north on the coast. And so they, they destroyed the city, defeated the Sidonians, and then they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. Verse 29, they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Now, here's the real clincher here when we get into verse, when we get into verse 30. 
Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And now we're told who the priest was. Jonathan, the son of Gershom. Now, how many of you have... I've got... Um, I'm using King, New King James here. Mine says the son of Manasseh. How many of you have the son of Moses? See, it's the son of Moses. What happened was later on, <clears throat> after the exile... That was a little too much for some of the scribes to handle. So in some of the manuscripts, they inserted... The only difference between Moses and Manasseh was the N in Hebrew. So they inserted an N because they couldn't associate this kind of evil idolatry with Moses, but they could with the evil king Manasseh. Remember, the evil king Manasseh, this isn't the first battle of Manasseh or the second battle of Manasseh for you uh, Civil War buffs. That's who Manassas was named for. Manassas was the evil king, uh, second to last evil king in Israel. And so um, uh, they associated evil and idolatry with Manassas. So they said, oh, this, uh, this must have been an error. So they inserted uh, the uh, in there. But the Septuagint and other ancient translations of the Hebrew Old Testament support the view that it was uh, Moses. And so what this tells you is that this is a direct descendant of Moses who is leading the people. What legitimacy they must have. We've got Moses' great-great-grandson here, and he's established our temple, and he's our priest. God is really blessing us. See, this is how apostate religion works. It it, it has this uh, veneer of legitimacy uh, that looks... Very good, and unless you are willing to study and to dig beneath the surface, you're going to be sucked into it. Okay, let's have a couple of uh, applications here, see some some application from this section. First of all, what we see is religion doesn't restrain morality or promote virtue. Religion doesn't restrain morality or promote virtue. These people are very religious, but they are lying they're stealing. They are uh, complete reprobates in terms of personal ethics. So religion doesn't promote morality. Only when you have a God who is bigger than creation can you have a set of absolutes that are large enough to provide a foundation uh, for ethics. Second point I want to... Emphasizes that religion doesn't always deny the teaching of Scripture. Often it completely affirms everything that the Scripture says, and then it adds something to it, which is what we have here. Nobody's denying the the legitimacy of Moses or the law of Moses or the tabernacle. They're just adding to it. This is the same kind of thing you have with charismatics. They add to Scripture. So you have two trends throughout history. You either take away from Scripture or you add to Scripture. The liberals come along and say, they take out their razor blades, say, God didn't say this, Jesus didn't say this. You have the arrogance of the Jesus seminar, and they come along and they have their little uh, five-color codes for every verse in the, in the Gospels and decide what, Jesus, what could never have happened, what probably never happened, what possibly never happened, what might have happened, and what did happen. And maybe you have... 30 verses out of all four Gospels that they believe are historically accurate. Everything else is either maybe most of it is it probably didn't happen. 
So that's liberalism. Liberalism always comes in and takes away from the word. And then you have mysticism, which adds to the word. It's always more revelation. This is what happened with the Montanists back in the in the second uh, century. You know, the the Marcionites came along and they took away from the word, and the the Montanists came along and added to the word. And a, a third observation is that false religion treats God like a talisman, like a magic charm that if you just say the right words, if you do the right thing, if you just give the right money the right way, if you just say the prayer of Jabez 15 or 20 times a day, then God is going to bless you and prosper you. And that's just the same kind of mentality that you have here. It has nothing to do with with biblical truth. Well, that's what happens how... how Dan introduces idolatry into the nation, and we see that they, as you study through the Old Testament, that it never changes. The idolatrous nature of the Danites is further developed after the breakup of the nation into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. So let's get our history down. We have the period of the conquest under Joshua, which is the, the high watermark of the Israelite history when they are at their greatest level spiritually. They've had the conquest of Jericho and Ai, conquest of the Southern Confederacy and the Northern Confederacy of Canaanites, and then it's up to them to do the each tribe to do the mopping up operation in their own territory. That's when failure enters in. They begin to compromise with the Canaanites. That's the period of the judges, a period of 450 years or so of complete anarchy that is a result of moral relativism. This ends with the last judge who is Samuel. And he is the king anointer. And then we have the, the united monarchy, which is Saul and David. Saul fails to obey God, and so the kingdom is taken from him and given to David. And then David has his son Solomon. So there's three kings in the united monarchy, Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon built a power base in the government, and he his authority tended towards tyranny and tyranny of taxation. And when he died, his son Rehoboam became the king of of all of Israel. But he listened to his peers who said, "Just keep taxing the people. Let, let's take, make sure." Uh, we're taken care of well, so you just tax the people and don't operate on a on a basis of grace. And so it, that caused a rift in the nation. And there's a major civil war that takes place, one of the first tax revolts in history, and the ten northern tribes split off. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay together. The northern tribes become known as the northern kingdom of Israel. The two uh, southern tribes become known as the uh, kingdom of Judah. And the first king in the north is Jeroboam I. And Jeroboam I understands that if he's going to be able to unite his people, he has to do it on a religious basis that is uh, that competes with the religious foundation of the nation. And so the first thing he does is he rewrites history, 
he introduces historical revisionism because that is going to give them a legitimate basis for their existence. So turn with me to First Kings chapter First Kings chapter twelve. First Kings chapter twelve describes the tax revolt against Rehoboam. But then Jeroboam says, we've got, somehow we've got to get God on our side. So he's going to pull the same kind of religious operation to give themselves a sense of legitimacy and to get God on their side as we saw earlier with the uh, Danites and, and, and judges. Now let's just skip down to verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. We see it's in the same area where we just were. He built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there, and he went out from there and, and built uh, Penuel, which is across the uh, Jordan. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom might return to the house of David. Now this gives us his rationale. Now there may, the kingdom might go back to David. Why would the kingdom go back to David? Well, you ha- if the people are following the Mosaic law, they've got to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year to, to the temple the temple is what unites the people, so he's got to find some way to keep them from going down to Jerusalem to, uh, to, to worship the Lord, because if they do that, that's just going to be pressure to reunite with the south, which is a, his rationale in verse 27. These people go up to offer sacrifices at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam the king of Judah, and they will kill me, and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked his advice, and he made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. You know, it's too much trouble to go that far. It's too hard to get up on Sunday morning. You'd rather stay in bed and watch TV. It's too hard to go to Bible class three or four times a week. It's too hard to discipline yourselves to listen to tape record. Let's just do something easy. Let's just be bedside Baptists, and we'll just turn on the TV, have something close at hand. So they create uh, two calves of gold, and he says to the people, Here are your gods. This is a God who brought you up out of, out of Egypt. Now, he was a student of history, perhaps, because that's exactly what Aaron said when he created the golden calf uh, while Moses was up on, on Mount Sinai. Here are your gods, O Israel, which you brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one where? In Bethel, which is down south in, in the area of Ephraim, and he set up the other one where? In Dan. Why? So they would, Dan's up in the north. It's, uh, it's about 100 miles or so from Dan down to Jerusalem. It's probably about 70 miles from Dan down to Bethel. So this way, if we have a shrine up there, then they don't have to go very far. It's convenient. It's comfortable. They can just go worship uh, at, at the tab, uh, tabernacle there, and then they'll uh, worship down, and they won't go down to Jerusalem. Now, this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And then it goes on to say in verse 31, He made shrines on the high places. He made priests from every class of people, not just Levites, so he sets up his own priesthood, and it's just following in the steps and the precedent that was established uh, by Dan. Now, uh, Dan, nothing good is said about Dan in the rest of the of the Old Testament, but Dan is given an allotment in the future kingdom. Dan is not mentioned in Revelation 7, where we have the 12,000 evangelists from each of the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. 
There's no 12,000 evangelists from Dan. Why? Because of their spiritual apostasy. However, God is gracious. No matter how much we fail, no matter how apostate we become, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has a plan for you, and there is a future uh, of eternal life. And the same is true for the tribe of Dan. In Ezekiel 48, uh, verses 1 and 2, and 48:32, you have the description of the land allotment for Dan in the future millennial kingdom. So there is grace to them despite their failure and despite their disobedience. So even though Dan is the tribe of apostasy, there is a future in God's plan uh, for them. Now next time we'll come back and get into verse uh, 21 where we start dealing with uh, Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to be uh, reminded of the <clears throat> terrible depravity that is in the human heart, that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And in a context of, uh, of rebellion against your authority, a context of relativism, man will generate his own God, generate his own religion to just justify his own arrogance. Father, we pray that you would keep us uh, faithful, that you would keep us on our toes, that we may see these trends of our own sin natures, that we may recognize their danger and keep ourselves humble toward you uh, because we know from Scripture that you exalt the humble. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.